Psalm 6, to the chief musician on Nuganoth upon Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thine hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be shamed, ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. Amen. I was just wondering from the sound team, has that distortion now gone away from the speakers, do you think? If I keep on talking. Right, but it should be, uh, I'm getting a nod that it's improved over the speakers. Yeah, 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 though there was a setting on the, on the mic that uh, had gone off. And that's probably solved. All being well. So with Psalm 6, we now come to a psalm uh, that has doctrines which are quite deep and in some ways difficult, some challenging doctrines. I mean, it opens up with David pleading for Christ's chastening to lessen, to cease, in fact. And it ends with with a petition of imprecation, and we'll look at what that means very shortly, against David's own enemies, and both of which would contradict the unbiblical and superficial doctrines that are taught in many churches. The idea that the Lord's hand would be heavy upon one of his own children is not uh, the idea that, that, that many people have of God and, and the false ideas that, that many of us have of God by nature that are taught in churches that should know better. They've made of God a sort of Santa Claus figure or some indulgent alpha male father who, who, who allows all sorts of things to happen and is not strict in the slightest. We say he's a modern soy boy, is what they've made of the Lord God Almighty. Well, if that's your idea, or if that's the ideas that you've heard, then, then the truths of Psalm 6 will help correct those idolatrous images that we have of the Lord God. And before we even get into the meat of the psalm, and there's much here, there's even a a wonderful image here of Christ himself. Even an aspect that you could join Psalm 6 with Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is very clearly of Christ on the cross, but here we have something of Christ also under the great chastisements and wrath of God for his own people's sake. But I don't know if we'll have time to go into that layer of Psalm 6. Just briefly, look at the superscription with me. It says, To the chief musician on Nuginoth upon Sheminith, a psalm 
of David. Very quickly then just going through it. So it's clearly a psalm of David. David is the psalmist. He's written it and he's written it to the chief musician of the temple. Now the temple was not yet built but it was received by him and Nathan and Gad. Um, all three then as prophets from God receiving this information for how the temple was to be established and how the service of the Levites was to be altered. They were no longer carrying a tabernacle around. And so one, one group of the Levites was to become musicians. And so we have that musical term that we saw in Psalm 4, Nuginoth, which means stringed instruments. So it's to be played upon stringed instruments. The question is then, which ones? Well, we know from the scriptures there were only five instruments that were permitted to the Levites for them to play uh, in the temple service. And they were the trumpets, so brass, cornets, also brass, cymbals, percussion, and brass, uh, and then harps and psalteries. Now, I suspect not everyone can say what a psaltery is. Uh, it's, it's related to the word psalm. A psaltery was, a, was something that you plucked. And if I could just give a, an idea, if you get a, 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 an acoustic guitar, you chop off the neck and you make the guitar a little bit more square, then that, that's sort of similar with more strings on it. That would give you an idea. Then you have it on its back as if it was a, a, as if it was a steel guitar, for those who know that, that instrument. And essentially like a dulcimer, if you know what that one is. I don't think anyone knows what a psaltery or a dulcimer is. But if I say a, a guitar on its back with a chopped off neck, but we're closer to what this instrument was. So these are the two stringed instruments that were used in the worship of God, in public worship, I mean, and in the temple worship yet to come, were the, the, psaltery, and, the psaltery and the harp, the stringed instruments. So these are the two instruments that they are to have uh, be played upon, and it's upon Sheminith. Now, Sheminith is a word that comes from the word seven. So it's on the seventh, so we would understand that as being an octave, which although means eight, but let's not get into the complicated details of that. But anyway, so either one set of instruments played the melody, melody and then there was a, a harmony of the octave being played above it. So it's written in the time of David's kingship. We understand that much. But we'll, we'll go straight in, having looked at that uh, superscription, and, and look at the first of four points. Firstly, David's prayer for mercy. David's prayer for mercy. As we read those words, he opens up the psalm. He says, O Lord, O Jehovah, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot pleasure. Again, uh, that, that, that parallelism that we have in Hebrew so often, uh, saying one thing and saying the same thing, but just with different words. And, this, uh, and sometimes that is to give us two different angles, to give us the fullness of something. In this case, it's to emphasize it. We're not getting any new information here. The rebuke and the chastening is because of his anger, his hot displeasure. So it's really a doubling up to show the, to emphasize how deep it is, how great the Lord's anger is. So in David's prayer for mercy, let us firstly see that this is a chastening love. A chastening love. What does chasten mean? It's not a word that we may use much these days. Well, it is a form of punishment that's meant to improve, to correct, and it is generally a, a parental uh, punishment. 
So it's not like that you go to, if, you, if you've broken the crime, then you, you're sent to a prison, you, you have all those things, you're in an abusive situation now in prison where terrible things can happen to you, but also cut off from your family. I mean, uh, prison itself is an unbiblical institution, by the way, but we're not going to get into that this evening. But just to understand that there are many things to do with that, and really many people come out more dysfunctional uh, than they went in. Prison does not really reform, it does not really correct, it really just locks up those who are a danger to society. And that in and of itself is a very handy thing, of course. So I'm not against uh, that in, in that sense. But a chastening is meant to correct, it's meant to discipline. It is a punishment, it is a physical and emotional punishment. And let's, let's so, so when they understand what this chastening is, this is the Lord's punishment. It's the same that you've done something, your parents has warned you against it, and you understand clearly what you, that you're not to do it. You understand also that if you do do it, if you do touch that which you're not to touch, and especially if you touch it that it breaks, that, then you know that there, is a, that, 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 uh, there is punishment coming. That uh, mummy's favorite spoon is being drawn out of the drawer, or whatever it might be, to deal with you. But that's a chastening. That's a punishment. But that's a chastening love. So David, David is clearly suffering the Lord's wrath, as it says here. He begins, rebuke me not in thine anger. And those words, anger and hot displeasure, are, are described here by David himself. David is therefore understanding what's happening. He's understanding that God is clearly angry with him. But why is that? Now we understand that the wrath of God is against all sinners. But what about a believer like David? This is not the same wrath, of course, upon him. But it is the holy displeasure of a heavenly father against his own child. His own child has done something wrong, and not something light, but some sin. The sin's not mentioned, but the chastisement is mentioned. And how can we rhyme such chastisement with a loving God? Well, most, a lot of the church will just ignore the Psalter, and they won't look at Psalm 6, and they will ignore other passages that we will look at shortly as we come to the end of this verse, of this psalm. But how can we rhyme that chastising of God with a loving Father? Well, it's easily because a holy Father is correcting his child's ungodly and unholy behavior. The Lord is not pleased with sin and with lying and with deceit and, and, and all these other matters. It, it's the only way if prior rebukes have been, have been ignored. It's the same. It's the relationship between a, a parent and a child. The warnings have gone forth. The threats have gone forth. The final warning has gone forth. And it's all been ignored. And it's the way that the Lord deals with his children. As I said, the Lord is not a soy boy. He's not, a, he's not an alpha uh, passive male. He knows that sparing the rod spoils, that is, rots the child's character. And so when it needs to be done, he does it. Parents, take that on board. Not, not as the first... Uh, um, first step of chastisement, but certainly it must be there according to the law of the Lord, lest we rot his children that he has given to us. Hebrews 12 verses 6 to 8 encourages New Testament light 
upon the situation. Hebrews 12, verse 6 to 8, explain this to us. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. You're not true offspring. You're not truly born again. If you can come to Christ and, and have a life wherein there is sin and disobedience and God does not deal with you as a, as a strict but kind father should, then Paul says here, you're not even a child of God. You're still a child of the devil. So it is a good sign then when the Lord deals with us. Although it may be a very unpleasant situation, a very unpleasant experience. And, and this is what David himself says, the great psalmist, the king of Israel, a man after God's own heart, receives chastisement. Now, we, there are various times in David's life we could point to where, where he is in rebellion, he's in sin against God. Of course, his many sins against Uriah the Hittite are the ones that come at the top of the list. That's the one that's mentioned again and again and again. David, a man after God's own heart, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That, that, that's repeated again and again in the Scriptures. Could it be referring to this? It's possible, but I think not, because Psalm 51 deals with that so, so deeply and so fully in how the Lord dealt with him and how his reaction was to that. Whatever it was, and there are other times as well, it was a serious sin because the Lord would not deal with a light sin in such a serious and heavy manner, we could say. But the Lord was not pleased that the king of his people was acting so unrepentantly. There's a sin here, a wicked sin, and hence, therefore, he is being scourged, he is being, he's being rebuked, he's being chastised. Why? Because God loves doing this? No. To bring David back to his senses. To make David to wake up, to cause him to repent. So we've seen the, the, that this is a chastening love that we have before us. This is not God being losing control. This is not being God being vicious or vindictive or mean. And if you've ever had a father or an authority figure that's ever been like that to you, do not confuse the two. That God is loving and kind. And because he loves, he chastises. Secondly, we see the severity of the chastisement the severity of it, and we see that in verses 2 and 3, where he says, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul, my soul is also sore vexed. But thou, O Lord, how long? Vexed. Vexed is a word that we may not use that much these days. I remember my mum used to say it to me sometimes, Paul, I am so vexed with you. And so it has a very personal meaning for myself. But um, in this case, vex, that, that, that um, there is a bad feeling, a, a bad condition. Um, literally, it's from a verb, a verb in, 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 in Latin, to be annoyed with. To be annoyed with. But how do we have this? This is now a passive annoyance in the sense that my bones are being vexed. 
My bones are being vexed. My soul is also sore vexed. They are being chastised. They are in pain. They are in discomfort. But understanding that the degree of David's chastisement is always commensurate, it's always at the same degree as to the degree of the sin that needs dealing with, so he's not receiving more than he deserves. In fact, we understand that we never receive, we always receive less uh, than we deserve. We know that from Psalm 103. But he is receiving it, and he knows who's giving it. And that's the first expression that we saw in verse 2, is have mercy, O Lord, have mercy upon me, O Lord. David can't take it any longer. Whatever form that chastisement is taking, it's striking David on the inside, and it's striking him on the outside. Maybe, maybe on the outside it's a physical painful disease. Maybe on the inside we have the convicting work of the Holy Spirit that's working against his conscience. Or maybe it is, as we see in mentioned in verse 7, in verse 8, and verse 10, maybe this is an anguish on the inside that's starting to reveal itself on the outside, and like stress can bring forth uh, painful uh, boils and, 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 and other conditions physically in the body, that which is happening on the inside, because of the stress that's caused by the enemies. Because the enemies are mentioned here three times in the Scriptures. But, and maybe it's the Lord is using those, not maybe about it. He realizes that it is from the Lord, that these people are, are against him, and they're causing him anguish on the inside. It's causing him painful whatever disease on the outside or a condition. And he knows that he needs to seek mercy from God. And the question then, well, if the Lord can deal with David like this, can the Lord deal with you like this? And the answer is yes. Not only can he, but he will do. Well, you are a true child of God, we already have that. The, the Paul says it's a mark of true sonship. Of course, when we use sonship biblically, we're talking about men and women. It's a sign of true sonship. And of course, we're not jumping up and down in the pew saying, I'm looking forward to this. Well, I would say in that case, to avoid this, you need to keep short accounts with God. You see that there's some sin, you see there's something wrong, and as we're going through it, and maybe there are certain sins or sinful behaviors or reactions that would remind us more contextually that we need to keep short accounts. Then we need to repent. We shouldn't keep sin hidden from God because, of course, sin is never hidden from God. You can lie to yourself, you can lie to others, but you can never lie to God. So God not only can deal with you like this, he will deal with you if you are his child and then you are stubbornly in your sin. He wants you to get away, with, get away from that. He has provided all that's needed for all sin and all addiction to sin to be removed entirely from your life. And of course he knows that there's a great impossibility in a way because of the sinful nature that we carry around with us. But in spite of that, you know, there is great improvement to be made in the child of God. And so then, as we notice that the Scriptures do not say that God is being unloving when he does this, but he's being loving when he does these things. But remember then, 
that in your backslidden state or when a, a bosom sin is so appealing and Christ lays his hand heavily upon you, he does it because he loves you, because he wants the best for you, because he wants you to let go. It's like going up to a drug dealer and, as it were, just kicking the needle out of the hand and smashing on the syringe with your feet because you know it's not good for them. Now, the drug dealer, the drug addict may not be so pleased about it, but it's what they need to have done to them. That's David's prayer for mercy. Secondly, we see David's petition for deliverance. And there's an extension of this. David's petition for deliverance in verses 4 and 5. Return, O Lord. So he's, he's noticing the, the absence of God's intimate presence with him. As he says later on in Psalm 51, Take not thine Holy Spirit away from me. And he's feeling that. Return, O Lord. Deliver my soul. O save me. For thy mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of thee, and in, gra- in the grave who shall give thee thanks. Again, this is an indication then of the depth of the level of the Lord's chastisement towards David. And David, again, we can so often think, if we just ignore Uriah the Hittite and all of that, we can just think that this is, this is a super saint. This, this is a, a great hero of all the saints. And yet there's the encouragement there that there are no superheroes of the saints. There are great examples that we are to follow, but every single example that we have in the Scriptures, except for the Lord Jesus Christ, is a, is, a, is a good example and then a bad example, and then a good example and then a bad example. Even Paul says that, you are, that we are to follow him even as he follows Christ. Not just follow him in everything. But in so much as, as how he lives and, and as his witness is according to the word of God and as he's, yeah, follow his good example, follow his good witness. That's what we uh, need to do, of course, and then understand this. But David here, David is suffering. In fact, David sees death approaching. He is asking for deliverance, and then he says in verse 5, For in death there's no remembrance of thee. Feeling it's so close, so whether these enemies that he sees and their threats, they, you know, they're just round the corner, he's got the anguish inside, he's, he's bearing the, the anguish in his body also, and he, and, he, and he pleads for mercy, because if the Lord does not relent, if the Lord does not cease, if the Lord does not deliver, then death is the next, the next port of call, as it were. Notice upon which David pleads for mercy. David doesn't say, Lord, remember all the great things that I have done, although there is a context for doing that, in a a non-self-righteous context. Nehemiah does that. Lord, remember those things for good that I have done. But he's coming very simply and saying, Lord, be merciful to me because thou art merciful. Coming before the Lord. Lord, help me because thou art my helper. It's based upon God's merciful character. It is again not based upon anything that David is, is, is bringing. He's not, he's not coming with any, any self-righteous bribe. It's not anything in David. It's because of the mercy of God. And, and this merciful God is worthy to be praised. And this is what he then goes on to say, therefore, in verse 5. He says, In death, Lord, if thou takest away my life, 
you know, that body will not remember thee. Yeah, of course, we understand that the soul will be in glory and will be mem remembering and worshipping. But what David understands is that God created us body and soul to worship him here on earth. The intermediate... Oh, let me be careful not to use that state, uh, use that expression. But, 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 but the state of the disembodied soul in glory, again, is only waiting until God restores all things through Christ. And again, we're body and soul. So he understands, and he should know, he being one of the great, uh, great worshippers of the Bible, with you know, the half of the psalm book written by himself. You see, he realizes if he is dead, that sweet mouth of his will no longer praise God because it will be rotting in the grave. And yet God had created him for that. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and, and that's mostly ex as expressed most fully in true worship. And what is worship? It is walking with the Lord. Not just singing songs, but it is a walking with the Lord. But that lifeless body, Lord, there'll be a lifeless body soon. I won't be able to praise Thee. I won't be able to write a psalm or sing it. And that's how serious the situation is. And it's so serious because it's coming at the end of a whole trajectory of him weeping. Weeping. So it's on, not only on the basis of God's mercy does he call, but on the basis of grief. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. And a strong language to just help us understand how much he's weeping and how much he's crying. And we might think when we look at this, we think, well, this is over the top. This is exaggerated language. I think not. There are times in your life when there is great grief. And maybe that's never touched you. But when it has, it, it does cause great grief and great weeping. Uncontrollable. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. What does that mean? Well, that means you've been crying so much. You, see, you know somebody who's been weeping. If anyone's just been weeping for a, even a minute or two, you see, even, even a few seconds. I mean, I see it in my children. If, they, if they've had an accident or one of the others has been unpleasant to them, you see, immediately you see these, these, these glassy eyes and everything's red around the eyes and, and they may have only been crying for just a few, for weeping for a few seconds. When somebody has been weeping and weeping and weeping, and again, the, the, the eyes, as it were, they age and, and they, they, lose, they lose their shine. They are, as it were, consumed. You may know, you may know people who've had it, great difficulty the, and have been weeping a lot. That, 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 as it were, the life goes out of their eyes. The eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. And here we have now the first indication of the physical or the human level uh, whereby the Lord is chastening and scourging David. And, it's made, and, it, and, it, and the grief is so great, causing him sleeplessness. And we know how valuable sleep is. Those of us who have children know how precious sleep is. And to have it robbed is not an easy thing, but especially when you're having grief like this. And so we're no longer hearing of the Lord we're now hearing about these enemies, those who are against David, those that hated David. And again, remember now David is a king. David is established as a king. And as, as I think is therefore right to bring those two together, the Lord is using these enemies to, to humble uh, David, to, 
to bring him to, to a deep and pitiful state of prayer. To bring David, we could say, to an end of himself. Has it taken this much to humble David in this regard? Yes. Not just the reading of the Scriptures and being cut to the quick, that the Lord hates this sin and I'm involved in it, oh Lord forgive me, and it's dealt with those short accounts we were talking of. But here David has been holding on in some way. And that's because, this believer, we can be sinfully independent. Sinfully independent. And not casting our every care upon the Lord. We have many cares, but, but certain cares, we think we can deal with them. Why don't we let them go? Why don't we cast them upon the Lord? Well, I think that maybe says something about the sinfulness of our own reasoning. Yeah, I'll, I'll deal with this. I can deal with this, or I should deal with this, or even worse, I'll carry on dealing with this so that it gets worse, and I can have some, some masochistic uh, situation where it's, I, I'm going to feel worse and worse and worse about it, and maybe God will then sort it out for me. It's quite surprising how, how dark and twisted even the believer's heart and motivations can be. But we're not meant to hold on to our cares. You read, from the, you read from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and you read the example of the believers, you, you, you see the calling of God, you see the words of the prophets, is that we are to come to Him and cast all our cares upon Him at all time and every time. We were never created, even in Eden, we were never created to do it all ourselves. We were always meant to be dependent upon God. God delights in hearing our cries, delights in helping us in our misfortunes. He delights in, in doing all things for us. He sends his angels, lest we would stub our toe. And so it, it was always the meaning of God to be a heavenly father to his children and his children to be, to be needy so that he could express his fatherly love toward them. But the unneedy child needs chastising for their own good. David's prayer for mercy, David's petition for deliverance, and I think we're going to have to come back next week for David's plea for peace, and then finally David's um, imprecation against his foes times against us. We'll be carrying on for another 20 minutes, but we will come back, God willing, next time for the second half of Psalm 6. Let us close this part of our Bible study in prayer, please. Our Lord and our God, we do give thee thanks and praise for thy precious word, for the example of thy children there in the Old Testament, and what we've understood Lord, we do pray that Thou would increase our fear and our love, our dependence upon Thee. For we can be indeed so sinfully independent, and yet we're not to be independent of Thee. We are to be so dependent. Lord, we are to come to Thee to have our hearts filled, have our sorrows succored to have our weaknesses strengthened. And so, Lord, will thou help us. Help us in these regards and help us also to know that when these things come upon us, 
Yeah, we are to call out for help, but also to know that thy chastening hand is behind these things. Lord, we do rejoice, though, rejoice in those many years that are times of peace and rest that we enjoy as King Asa did. And yet there comes a time when that peace is removed and sin is always behind it. Or a time of testing. But Lord, in the testings where we are not sinfully guilty, and yet, Lord, it can lead us to be so independent, and yet we should come to Thee. Help us, Lord. Bless Thy word to us and help us in this time of prayer. We pray Thee in Jesus' name. Amen.